the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, and pinch hitting today for Carol Zernio is Peaches Hall. Carol on special assignment, and we're delighted to have Peaches come in. She's been here before. We love having her on the show. She's uh, head of the Griffin Senior Center over by Ingram Park Mall, right behind the Olive Garden is what she tells people because they are not inside the mall and people sometimes get confused. But you've done uh, dances inside the mall, sudden, spontaneous dances (laughs) in the mall, right? We combust. Yeah, Yeah. you did. That's cool. Well, thank you for coming in. And we're going to be dealing with a topic today that is in many ways near and dear to your heart, among other things, while she now directs a senior center uh, Peaches, in uh, part of her life, was uh, the director of a Memory Unit in Florida and is quite familiar with a number of the issues involving uh, patients who have dementia, which brings us to the opportunity to welcome Michael Splain, owner of Splain Consulting. He joins us on our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline, and we're delighted to have Michael with us for a variety of reasons. One is he spent a lot of time uh, working in the field of health and long-term care. Uh, so, Mike, thanks, first of all, for coming on. You're hanging out in Columbia, Maryland, which is a pretty neat place to be. Uh, we like it a lot. We've been uh, it's in the Washington area, so you get a flavor of uh, the company business, otherwise known as all things political. But you're far enough away that you don't get trapped into going to you know, expensive receptions and parties every night, hoping that you can catch a glimpse of a candidate or something stupid like that. <laughs> so, so you get just enough but politics, but not so much that you live it every day. Now, you spent a lot of your life working in uh, public policy and uh, advocacy staff for the Alzheimer's Association. Now, what brought you into this field? We, we were kidding off the air that a little uh, uh, Michael didn't wake up as a four-year-old and say, "Boy, I hope to work with dementia patients someday." No, but and and but uh, the fun part of this is that I'm I'm now running into people, let's just say less than half my age and twice as smart, who are actually want to make Alzheimer's and dementia their field. And any one of them that asks for help, I I try to give them a shove, whether it's internships or connections or whatever, because we need some uh, young brains in the field. No, I, I fell into Alzheimer's work uh, as a consequence of getting a certificate in gerontology 35 years ago at Humboldt, Rhode Island College in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, we got a certificate because nobody could figure out what the department could give us a degree. So we did cross-university, cross-college classes, 36 hours of classes, believe it or not, almost enough sure. for a master's degree, and we got a certificate. But uh, from there, I uh, landed a job in 1986 helping to invent and run one of the first Alzheimer's respite programs. Uh, and from there, the rest is you know, a long checkered past, but at any rate. Uh, but I had a very long, terrific career with the Alzheimer's Association, but moved into consulting about five years ago when I just needed to find a new way to work. So our, we're still doing a ton of Alzheimer's work, uh, some related work in elder abuse and vision issues for older adults. But we've also made a speciality and actually spun up a second company that's very focused on hospital care for people with dementia, which gets almost in all the care spectrum, gets almost no attention except indirectly. Why? Um, 
I, I think a lot of reasons. I think hospitals are very uh, busy, focused places. They want things they can fix. Um, healthcare may stop uh, at the neck, um, and and we're just not good at whole person healthcare. Uh, thinking that, uh, imagining that what we label uh, peaches. I'm sure you know this this label. What we label a readmissions problem, or mm-hmm. what an emergency room calls a uh, disparagingly calls an older lady with brittle diabetes. Uh, a frequent flyer because she's in and out of the emergency room every six or eight weeks getting her meds adjusted. What, what they're missing is what's going on with somebody with a problem with thinking. Right. Yeah. Why and do they have a UTI so often? Yeah. All of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, another, yeah why why do, do those kind of things happen? Sorry, right now, for I, those who don't have a playbook, that's a urinary tract infection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for uh, that's okay. breaking yeah, out that that's acronym a- for us. But yeah, I think so. So I think that. Um, there's a lot going on, uh, I think, in general. Um, also, you know, depending on how deeply forgetful people may be, uh, they may not be in a position to advocate for themselves. Uh, they may complicate their lives because their problems with thinking make them terrible medical historians. Uh, and, um, just, and, and then... Uh, even with caregivers, I, I listen to caregivers talk about the hospital experience with a person that they care about with Alzheimer's disease as the pretzel experience. Uh, why? Because you bend yourself into a pretzel to sleep in that ugly vinyl chair because you don't dare, dare leave that alone. Uh, you eat pretzels when you can steal away with 50 cents the stale pretzels that are in the break room that you sneak into so you can have at least something to eat because nobody's ever really take notice of the fact that you're there as the caregiver to try to help that person with dementia have a better hospitalization. And, you know, and you tie yourself in knots uh, just trying to wait for physicians and things that are just not working, that don't necessarily work in a very dementia-friendly way. Well, how then can Cognitive Solutions, your, your newest company, help fix that problem? Well, we work on a we work on a systems basis, but I think with your caregiver audience, uh, we we develop something we we call um, a, a, you know, a little workshop we call thoughtful hospitalizations. And I think of hospitalization and care and caregivers load as a play in three acts with a very important prelude. And the prelude to all this is that diagnosis is critical. Um, You know, most people, even in a rich country like the United States, and I'll I'll tell you that one of our fund clients is Alzheimer's Disease International, so we're literally tied into what's going on in Alzheimer's and dementia in 90 countries around the world. Uh, I can tell you, even in a rich country like the United States, only about 40% of people with Alzheimer's or a closely related disorder have a formal diagnosis. We also know that maybe as much as half the time, people who have a formal diagnosis are not informed of their diagnosis. Right. They don't know to ask. I've, I've had families when they come in say, uh, my mother has dementia, and I said, well, what kind of dementia? Well, we, we don't know. Yeah, or the, the family that says, well, we went to the doctors, and the doctor said that mom just has a little bit of light dementia. And we said, well, thank God it's not Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. I mean, Alzheimer's disease is a form of right. dementia. Right. It is a brain disease, not mental illness. Right. And it has a 3 to 20-year duration. And it is discernible from other things that might not be Alzheimer's disease mm-hmm. that include depression, problems with thyroid, certain infections. Uh, in the hospital setting, uh, people can become delirious, mm-hmm. which can be mixed up with Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, we, we frequently, I mean, it all starts with uh, recognition that people are having problems changing in their thinking, not just memory, but their ability to organize tasks, mm-hmm. their ability to um, use words, judgment, uh, some of the out now from a guy named Dan Marsden in, in Alabama that suggests that problems with numbers and checkbooks may be some of the earliest warning signs that people are experiencing cognitive changes that are I consistent agree. 
Well, then I'm in big trouble. I've I've never been able to balance my checkbook. (laughs) Stay with me. See, but that's the thing about Alzheimer's. It's not what how you've always been. It's change. Mm -hmm. Stay with me. We're we're talking with Michael Splane, not to be confused with Mickey Spillane, the late crime author. Michael Splane is owner of Splane Consulting, and we're talking about, among other things, hospitalization for dementia patients. Along with me today is Peaches Hall, who is pinch-hitting for Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. Uh, Michael, I think one of the saddest parts of all is that a company like yours is so desperately needed because uh, the healthcare system really doesn't do well uh, with seniors to begin with and, and with those with dementia uh, added on top of that. Uh, but you think they would, if you look at the demographics, we're going in that direction. Well, I think one of the reasons our, our, our business is starting to take off is, uh, is market share. Um, I, I think three years ago when we started talking to the hospital crowd, they were very afraid that we'll get all those people as if 30 to 40% of Medicare beneficiaries in a hospital on any given day don't have some form of cognitive impairment. Well, we don't want to have those people. Those people is your people. Yeah. And, and <laughs> so when you, there's a, you know, it is the market. When you recognize it, you have to do more for it. It is costly. So more, more staff. You have to have a secured unit. You have to have people that will feed. You have to have, uh, you know, what, have somebody to redirect when they want to pull the IVs out. You have to have somebody that if they've just broken their hip and now they have to use a wheelchair and they've never used it before, they're like, why am I in it? There's so much to it. No question. No question that it could cost more. On the other hand, one of our current clients was spending nearly a half a million dollars a year. That's really a lot of zeros on people they called sitters Mm. to merely sit by the bedside untrained Mm -hmm. to monitor what was going on with their quote-unquote difficult senior patients Mm -hmm. who were acting up. Mm Mm-hmm. Who do you think those folks are? Yeah, they're us. So, you know, so, so really back to our play in three acts, we've talked about the prelude, and then really life happens, and, and caregivers can only control what they can. Uh, but the person with Alzheimer's, if it's diagnosed early enough, or even, you know, even in the you know early to middle stages of the disease, can participate in advanced care planning and give direction about how they want to live the rest of their life including what kind of health care treatment they may want. I think caregivers can control home safety. When you realize that a third of people with Alzheimer's disease who end up in the hospital end up there from an accident within the home, either a fall or a trip or a hazard in the bathroom, um, there's all kinds of false prevention knowledge in the aging network, the area agencies and aging, which are in every community around the country, as well as online. I think families are in a great position to uh, also deal with maybe the hazards of somebody with dementia continuing to drive and being better prepared for natural disasters. And last, I, I think we have a lot to learn about this, and I think we all have a lot to learn about this, but uh, making sure that people with Alzheimer's disease are well hydrated and have decent nutrition mm-hmm. uh, probably is a way in which you can control uh, what you can. So so there's a prevention, right. if you will, is that maybe getting ready for the storm uh, is the first act of the play. All right, hold that thought. We're, we're going to come right back to you. Don't go anywhere. We're talking with uh, Michael Splane, owner of Splane Consulting. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Peaches Hall, who is pinch-hitting today for Carol Zerniel. This is Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to the local senior programs that focus on wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and people that care for them. 
Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers that offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and a whole lot more. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Centers. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. For more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. That's wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. We're having a fascinating uh, conversation with Michael Splain, owner of Splain Consulting, uh, dealing with thoughtful hospitalization for dementia patients and a whole lot more. I'm Ron Aaron. Along with Peaches Hall, who is pinch hitting for Carol Zerniel today, Caregiver SOS on air on 930 a.m., uh, the answer. And, Michael, we were talking about hospitalizations and issues involved with people with dementia. And uh, what about those who, who may also struggle with a variety of forms of mental illness who also are not treated will, well by our society? You know, we've identified some, I think this population is getting, uh, because of the hospital's focus on readmissions, uh, you, you need to know that, I'll keep it simple, that uh, under current Medicare rules, hospitals that have too frequent readmissions are actually going to be penalized in their rates. And as people have dealt with losing 3 to 5% of their Medicare payments, which are kind of thin to begin with, uh, they've, they've latched on to a number of special populations that need a focus and, and need attention. There's some wonderful models uh, developed out of uh, public charity hospitals, uh, which are really, you know, really hospitals of last resort in inner cities. There's some terrific models that have been developed in bringing together a really responsible leadership table of different social service and healthcare providers to brainstorm and to develop social solutions for persons with mental illness so that they don't use the hospital as a solution to their overall problems in life. Uh, so there's some terrific models that have developed in that space, uh, particularly out of, uh, out of Denver that are now getting widespread application around the country. And some of it just sounds like common sense stuff. Get the, you know, look at the hundred most expensive repeating people, realize that 80 to 90 percent of them have some kind of a, a mental health diagnosis. Convene as a hospital or as a healthcare provider, convene the right people around the table with authority and responsibility, and realizing that, um, that there are better ways to work with that person and make sure that they're not overutilizing the hospital. So there's some very helpful stuff happening in that space. What do we do with maybe a, a schizophrenic or a schizoaffective that stops taking the meds, starts to twist off, and you've got to take them to a hospital? That's a repeat all the time. Well, and, I, and what are the conditions under which they stop taking their meds? Did they run out of? I mean, they just did they run out of money? Did they run out of motivation? I mean, medication alone uh, in the mental health field, and I'm not a mental health expert, but medication alone is not uh, frequently not the answer. There's a context in which that medication is being taken or not taken. So I, I think those. When I look at what uh, the, the hospitals are doing. Uh, with that population, I think they try to go another layer deep into the uh, into the issues that the person, all the issues that the person may be facing. It may be that they they've gotten behind on their bills, and all of a sudden they don't have a place to live. Uh, not uncommon. So I think you know that's it's that whole person approach again, as opposed to just looking at somebody in a very narrow diagnostic episode of house kind of way. Well, one of the things hospitals are beginning to do, which is long overdue, uh, and uh, WellMed Medical Management, which uh, is large here in San Antonio and elsewhere in Texas and Florida, uh, providing social services into the home, seeing what's happening, seeing what's going on. And hospitals have resisted that, uh, but they're beginning to embrace that. Now, Peaches, you had some thoughts when it comes to uh, for example, medication. Uh, very often, those who are 
uh, taking medication for schizophrenia begin to feel better uh, and don't like the effects of the medication and stop taking it. Mm-hmm. And then spiral down. Right. And we have a large caseload here. Like any large city has, um, when I was a guardian, I had 88 on my caseload. And it was just constantly going back in, getting them back on their meds, but having a hospital stay and finding a psych unit that will accept them. Which is not easy. No. Uh, And paying for that is not easy. No. Well, yeah. (laughs) So unless you're on Medicaid, where does that money come from? Was my, mine were all Medicaid. So, right. But there are people right now that are suffering in their Medicaid. You know, they're not Medicare. They're not Medicaid. They just, you know. When you take a look, Michael, at uh, the challenges facing uh, certainly the, the health sector of our society, uh, and we talked earlier about uh, the bulge of seniors now moving through, uh, you know, thousands of baby boomers, boomers turning uh, 65 every day in this country, it, it creates both an opportunity uh, and a challenge. And the opportunity, of course, is new business. Sure. And, and, and it can be, and I think, the, but it's, is it the right business? Um, I think that's, that's true. You know, people with Alzheimer's, coming back to Alzheimer's and being, you know, thoughtful about hospitalization, the, the trick about people with Alzheimer's disease is the trick about people, and that is they probably just don't have one disease. Um, people about the Alzheimer's Association, their facts and figures suggest that as many as three-quarters of people living with Alzheimer's disease have at least one other chronic condition. And when you think about, I'll just take diabetes and, and dementia as an example. When you think about uh, living well with both conditions, when, when our problems with thinking interfere with our ability to deal with a chronic disease, that's when the really expensive stuff happens for both the person and uh, person and family and for healthcare systems. Um, so our, our joke around our family about diabetes and dementia, we lived with, uh, my father-in-law had vascular dementia and he had a terrible sweet tooth. And talking about hospitals getting out into the community, we actually had a, a nurse practitioner come out and eyeball our house after uh, my mother-in-law and father-in-law's house after one of Henry's hospital stays. And she walked into the house, and the first thing she spotted was the banana tree. Everybody's got one of these little doodads that they hang their beautiful ripe bananas from. And the nurse turned to my mother-in-law and said, the first thing you're going to do is hide the bananas because he lacks impulse control and he's whacking out his sugar because he's sitting there eating the bananas. I mean, simple things. Um, you know, diabetes and dementia, uh, we, we can teach families to look at the feet of people with dementia who are not looking at their own feet uh, or even and, and keep a record and be able to report to a physician uh, because they're using a notebook. They can report to a physician or other healthcare provider the changes they're seeing. So I think this this facing up to the fact that people are in multiple chronic conditions and, again, thinking first and foremost about what can we do about preventing that hospitalization, whether it's an emergency department visit or uh, a full-blown hospital stay, uh, it's probably where we can invest more and, and talk about this, frankly. But, you know, hospitalization happens, and I guess the, the most important advice that I can offer family caregivers is everybody that's written caregiver materials about hospitalization says, tell the health care providers that your loved one has Alzheimer's disease. I'm going to go one better. Tell the health care provider that your loved one has Alzheimer's disease and explain it. Because what we have found is medical professionals hear the words, they might write them down, but unless they have had either direct experience or family experience, they don't really understand what the implications are. It's just kind of noise. So my dad has Alzheimer's disease. He's a terrible medical historian. My dad has Alzheimer's disease, and unless he gets a you know a, a decent glass of water every couple of hours that you give him and prompt him, he will become dehydrated and even more difficult as a patient. Now, listening to uh, what you're saying, uh, I've got a note just passed passed to me by Peaches that says, 
you need to have that conversation with every shift in the hospital, which is good advice. Which is exactly right. And until we get health care, until we have record systems that kind of take note of this, uh, we, we recently pitched a client, uh, a potential client, and I, at the executive level, and uh, the executive was incredibly dismissive, uh, basically saying, "All you, Mr. Splain, all you really need to do is come in and train my admissions clerks to recognize these people. And I said, well, that's great. And I pulled up a screen of their admissions, uh, their, their cover sheet for admissions. I said, so when we've trained your admissions clerk to find these people, where do they put that on this screen? Because there was no place at all to note that they were dealing with somebody with cognitive impairment. Interesting. Not that we would ask admissions people to be diagnosticians to begin with. Right. Um, when, he, when we further went on, and he said, well, that's not really fair. And I said, well, you know, your emergency department does a really good job of noting people with change in mental status, making sure they're hydrated, asking them if they've been in the emergency room for more than four hours, if they're hungry. But, you know, none of that stuff gets to the floor. So your absolute peaches is absolutely right. Uh, it's unfortunate, but right now it, it's the family caregiver that has the burden of the able-brained people in the family uh, have the burden of explaining the disease person by person, shift by shift. But as I was saying, it's just not enough to say, my father has dementia, my mom has Alzheimer's disease. And and even people that work in long-term care uh, who are trying to transmit information that they have. Right, i got to stop you right there. We're going to come right back to you. Don't go away. Don't go away. I was waiting for you to take a breath, which you, you never do. So stick with us right now on Caregiver SOS On Air. We're talking with Michael Splain, Peaches Hall, pinch hitting for Carol Zernial. I'm Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Peaches Hall, and my apologies to Michael Splain for jumping all over him, but we needed to take a break, and breaks wait for no man or woman. Michael is owner of Splain Consulting and deals with healthcare systems and hospitals across the country, and you uh, were talking about uh, making sure that the message gets through from admissions to the floor to the doctors to the nurses. Uh, it, it, it ought to happen, but communications uh, within hospitals doesn't always flow smoothly, does it? Well, no, but you know, but but they're laser focused. You know, if you're walking in with chest pains, life's good. <laughs> you know, I, I'm I'm always amazed at, at how you know uh, how life giving, life saving, and almost just nearly, uh, and I'm appreciative of how miraculous hospitals are, but they're not whole person centered. Um, and I think increasingly, uh, particularly dealing with frail older adults, uh, they're 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 adapting, and they're going to have to adapt because that is the market. That's who's uh, that's who their customers are. I think they need to get more adapted. You know, we were talking just before the break about the experience of long term care providers who uh, judge that the person they're caring for is uh, beyond their capability, needs hospitalization. And even long-term care providers who provide information to the hospital or expect to get information back, uh, there's a real gap in information flow. Uh, The good news is there are are lots of tools. The American Medical Directors Association has some good old paper and pencil tools that long-term care providers, whether they're community care providers like Peaches at her senior center and their past life working in adult ed care or residential care settings, there are even you know simple paper and pencil tools to facilitate that communication back and forth. Because the third act of this play is recovery uh, after the hospitalization and readmission prevention. Michael, uh, one people, of the things I always would do is have them put in right in the front of the sheet where every nurse looks, it, right by that DNR, is to say dementia. Yep. Yeah, and, and I hope that works, but I think it's dementia and and a little bit more information to draw a picture for people. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Uh, and and my, my, my hero in hospitalization and Alzheimer's is a lady in the United Kingdom. Uh, many national governments have developed national Alzheimer plans, including our own, uh, as well as many states, including the great state of Texas. 
Um, the UK has really had a zero fo- zeroed in on hospitalization as a major area in their national plan, and I think that started the day when there was a daughter caregiver who talked about how her dad uh, came out of the hospital after 14 days malnourished and dehydrated uh, and really, really in wretched shape and, and compared to when he went in. Uh, and she pointed out that uh, in this public testimony uh, that, in fact, his, her dad had never been served his dinner under a mushroom or his drink in a sippy cup. Okay. Think about that plastic dome. Mm-hmm. Uh, that a meal might get served under in a hospital setting mm-hmm. uh, and nobody uncovering it or uh, indicating that food is underneath and people quickly tra- clearing trays. Uh, imagine how somebody can be mistaken as somebody who's not interested in eating just for the simple fact that they can't recognize what's put in front of them in the form in which it's put in front of them. Or they've lost the, lost the ability to feed themselves. Somebody needed well, that, to be that feeding them. happen as mm-hmm. well, sure. So I think the third act is recovery. Uh, people with uh, probably as much as 40 to 50% of the Medicare readmissions problem are people with dementia. That's not just my explain. There's people like Katie Maslow and uh, a researcher out of Rhode Island named Dayello that's documented that well. So we're really in a situation where, where, you know, how do we prevent that readmission? Understanding that people with dementia have higher rates of falls or delirium when they're in the hospital, uh, it's really a tricky business. I think my favorite to zero in here is uh, to help that person with Alzheimer's deal with uh, un- unrecognized and untreated pain, uh, as well as the inadequate food and hydration. I think coming out of the hospital, both of those issues are ones that both family and professional caregivers uh, can, can watch in an important way. Um, and, and make sure that a person doesn't become so morbid again that they end up back in the hospital. Talk a little more about untreated, unrecognized pain. You know, in the dementia world, we uh, focused an awful lot. We used to what we used to call people with difficult behaviors. And I think starting maybe 12, 13 years ago, we started to realize and had a whole different frame on behaviors, understanding that what we were calling difficult behaviors was, in fact, communication. And what's frequently communicated when a person uh, with advanced dementia is is acting uh, in a way that we may find inappropriate or difficult uh, is more frequently than not untreated, unrecognized pain. Now, there's both new pain. Uh, that may not that may have developed for think about being in a hospital bed for four or five days unable to walk or have a wound or a, a, an injury that's been treated uh, but there may also be uh, an end to treating old pain um, it, you know people may be maybe have taken on a regular basis they may be taking uh, anti-inflammatories or Tylenol for arthritis pain that that discontinued because it wasn't known to the hospital. And so there are, the University of Iowa, uh, as well as other more scientific people than I, have developed really terrific tools uh, that are on the same par as the little 10-point scale or the little smiley faces, uh, specifically for people with Alzheimer's disease who are nonverbal to help assess whether or not they are in pain. Do they understand what the little smiley faces are? No, and that's why the University of Iowa has developed some different tools uh, that even work with people that are in very, very hmm. advanced dementia in terms of being able to, to uh, identify how people are behaving and how that may relate to un- unrecognized and untreated pain. And why is that important? Well, I think if people are in pain, they're going to, they're going to, and, and, they're, and they have difficulty speaking or articulating what's going on, um, they're going to act, quote unquote, act out. And when, when people live in a hospital setting, um, act out, uh, along will come restraints, physical or chemical. There will come, and, and with the addition of those things and not being able to get at the underlying issue, um, comes even more difficulty for that person. 
I think also the process of being labeled a person with a uh, behaviorally difficult person may affect uh, whether they can return to home, assisted living, or even get access to a rehabilitation facility. And, and it all spirals out of control because we able-brained people are not really perceptive enough to, re- to understand that mm-hmm. behavior has meaning. Yeah, and the, the uh, pain can also spike things like their blood pressure and throw a lot of that off. Sure. So if they're not sure. getting it, yeah, and they don't know to ask. They can't tell you, so exactly. Right, and that's why we need, that's why we need the, you know, it, it is as easy as the smiley face of the 10-point scale is to use. Uh, we need to, to be able to work with our, our less verbal people with dementia. You've just joined us. You're listening to uh, Michael Splain, owner of Splain Consulting, talking about the healthcare system and especially seniors with dementia. I'm Ron Aaron. Along with Peaches Hall, who is pinch hitting for Carol Zerniel today on Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Uh, Michael, as I listen to you, has anybody said you sound a whole lot like Governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie? Not in my entire life. <laughs> well, now you know. Yeah, my grandfather, who worked the wards for James Michael Curley, just rolled in his grave, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand that. There you go. Uh, are you enjoying the kind of work you're doing? Because you're in, in many ways, slogging through the the fields of thick mud. Oh, I, I, you know, hope is not optimism. Um, hope is the virtue that we earn uh, through uh, suffering, toil, and hard work. It, and, and I'm hopeful. I, I think um, I'm more hopeful now that uh, as a society and as uh, countries, uh, we are beginning to get our arms around um, our, our rapidly aging world, that we're beginning to uh, do th- some things that are more planful. Um, but, you know, as somebody that, you know, 35 years ago joined the ranks of academic gerontologists who's been shouting, the boomers are coming, the boomers are coming. Well, now they're here. Right. Uh, and we don't know how to live in this world um, where uh, a quarter of people 65 years old, think about this, a quarter of people 65 years old have at least one living parent. If you extend that to parents in law, 40% of people 60 to 65 years old have a living parent or parent-in-law. We, we don't, this is the undiscovered country. This is better than Star Trek. Uh, we're moving into a time when uh, all kinds of things are going to be changing right in front of us, and, and I, I remain hopeful. And as you think about uh, really the pressure that uh, CMS, the Center for uh, Medicaid, Medicare Standards, has brought on hospitals, uh, they uh, are being effective. It's working. Oh, I, I, I think I think it is working. I think there is. Uh, we'll we'll see some additional policy changes that are coming online, where the different links in the chain of a hospitalization, from prior to hospitalization to rehabilitation and post acute care, all of those all of those different silos and pieces are now getting more and more strongly linked together, both through payment systems and customer choice, mm. uh, customer consumer feedback on how well they're doing is becoming more and more a part of uh, how healthcare systems are operating and even paying. Uh, so I, I think the consumer voice is, is rising up at the same time. We're, we're doing things a lot more systematically and we're being smarter about uh, about our spending, uh, there's no question that we we can't see Medicare growing six to seven percent a year as far as the eye can see without really looking at how we're spending that money and trying to do it more responsibly. So I think prevention and, and preventing the you know the real emphasis on trying to prevent the more expensive episodes of health care plays very very well into 
caregivers and, and people who care about people with dementia uh, taking a thoughtful look at hospitals. You know, in a nutshell, you just described what WellMed Medical Management's focus is, which is it's easier to keep people healthy than it is to cure something that's really debilitating. Works for me. So I want to thank you for coming on. If people want more information, do you have a website? Yeah, it's, it's just blankconsulting.com or cognitivesol.com. Uh, you just Google Cognitive Solutions. It'll pop up cool. along with some kind of a psychiatrist somewhere there. I don't know how that <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. But at any rate, no disrespect to the psychiatrist. But, of course not. Um, but, you know, it's um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty easily found these days. I used to do all my work in secret, and then I started a business, and oh, hell, I've got a LinkedIn page and all that silly stuff, but people can find me, and uh, like Thank I said, you. Uh, for any uh, younger people that are young in this, this profession and are looking to make a difference in the world, I guess that's probably the most, the most important part of my hopefulness, is yeah. that there are uh, increasing numbers of younger people that are really committing themselves to the fight in all ways uh, about dementia and really making a difference in the world on it. Well, good. That's going to exclamation mark. Thank you. I appreciate you coming on. Michael Splain, owner of Splain Consulting. And uh, up next, Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on air. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to the local senior programs that focus on wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers that offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and a whole lot more. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Centers. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. Caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. For more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help, go to WellMedCharitableFoundation.org. That's WellMedCharitableFoundation.org. Well, welcome to Take 10. We end each of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs with Take 10. On 930 AM, The Answer, I'm Ron Aaron. Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us on our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline. He's a nationally known psychotherapist, an expert on addictions and caregiving, and Peaches Hall, pinch hitting for our co-host, Carol Zernil. And Peaches, you got a great topic you want to toss out. I do. I want to talk about um, not hospitals are the same. And if you have a, a loved one that's in a memory care what hospital do you choose? What are the questions you ask? What do you look for when you go? Now, someone in a memory care has dementia can't make that choice themselves. Right. So they fall. They get taken to a hospital. They have to have x-rays. Um, I've gone with with some of my residents to the hospital. They're, they're doing a fall, and, of course, they keep asking the member, now, does this hurt? And, and I'm like, excuse me, they have dementia. I'm here, you know, talking for – and they just ignore you like that, and they're moving their leg around. They, you know, they, they have no idea about dementia. You have to be able to place them somewhere where there's some experience. So, Jamie, how do you deal with that as a caregiver or a loved one? Well, there's two things that teachers brings up that's extremely important. Number one, it's vital to educate hospital staff. So that, that my background in healthcare has been predominantly in hospitals, and and even though we're professional caregivers, those who work within the hospital, I can flat out tell you, they're running at a rapid rate. It's like a, a Macy's on Christmas Day with two to three days' lengths of stays. They're burned out beyond belief. And if we don't take time as healthcare professionals to get the proper training that Peaches is talking about in terms of, for instance, dementia or how to deal with dementia uh, patients and their caregivers, then we're really missing a a huge, huge piece and we're never going to grow. That's the first thing. The second thing I would, which also speaks to what Peaches just said is, if you know you're a caregiver and you know there's several hospitals around you in your catchment area or your zip code area, um, I would investigate them long before hospitalization is needed. I would call up the community relations department. I would call up their, their, their clinical, um, uh, whoever the go-to person is to ask questions. And I would say, A, what do you do about the situation, which is dementia 
scale of, say, and caregiving? And B, what are you actually doing for the caregivers of your patients? That's really good advice. Will the hospitals let you do that? Yes. They and, have to. Yeah, and, and you need to ask questions like, do you have a secured unit? My mother's a wanderer. Are you just going to chain her to the bed? I mean, what do you do? How, is it, how, are you gonna, how do you know if she's in pain? She can't answer you. And here's the, the challenging part, Ron, and, and Peaches, and we all know this, and it's, it's very sad because America is sometimes dis- disenfranchised themselves from their loved ones, and it's more or less Anglo. Of course, I believe Hispanics, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, I think, you know, from a social standpoint, do much better with their caregivers. But many go into hospitals alone, and they don't have a loved one there, which is really, really, really a challenging issue. I would always suggest if you're a primary caregiver, one who lives with their loved one or around their loved one or a long-distance caregiver, is to have a plan of action for somebody to be educated enough to go in with the loved one to the hospital no matter what. And upon admission, as many times, obviously, upon the length of stay, and definitely, definitely at discharge, because at discharge, those recommendations are often not heard well by the patient, but are heard, you know, extraordinarily much better by the caregiver. Even if you don't have dementia, those those discharge instructions are rarely understood and heard. Rarely understood. And, and for me, it hits me personal. The reason why I started working on the human rights movement for caregiving is that my God loved my, my stepfather, the most wonderful man in the world who loved my mother. Uh, he's from Peru, and uh, he was in the hospital for three weeks with, when my mom was there. And never in that three-week period did they educate him on what to do upon uh, discharge. And, and, and he obviously was very challenged in terms of, of when she came home. And to be frank with you, um, it, it is appalling because within four days of coming home, uh, she had challenges and ended up passing away. Mm. And to me, they had three weeks to be able to educate him based upon, A, the disease, based upon things that they may be, that you need to be prepared to do and what to do in the case of an emergency. And never in those time, that time period did they have that session with him. Now, is it getting better now that uh, hospitals have more of a responsibility to uh, limit uh, return visits to make sure that quality care has been delivered? I think you're on target. I think that we're a very financially driven uh, society that when you have penalties, and, and that is a 30-day issue upon readmission, um, hospitals are going to get smart, get get educated, uh, and get prepared pretty darn quick to work with caregivers much, much better because it's going to hit their bottom line. Plus, we have what's called star ratings, and we have quality of care, and you're going to you're you're begging, if you will, if you're if you're a hospital or any healthcare institution, to make sure that your your patient or your caregiver has a good experience and gives good feedback. And and that's hard to do again with dementia. I've gone to visit um, some of the residents, and I've talked to the the desk and say, uh, "Is so and so eating? Did they have their meal? Oh yes, they ate really well today." So I'll go back in the room and I'll see the tray, and none of the covers have been opened. So they don't understand that. If they can't see the food, it's not there. So the staff wasn't even briefed on something to go in and check on them, take the covers off the food. So there's a lot of work to be done. Well, again, it's a reimbursable phenomenon. Caregivers Mm -hmm. are not the ones who actually are offering the reimbursement. So, uh, But if one is, like Ron says, if one is, is very strong diligence in terms of not coming back to that hospital, you better make sure that that caregiver is entirely educated, empowered, uh, and energized to be able to assist uh, their loved one. Now, if you just joined us, you're listening to Take 10. Uh, we bring you Take 10 at the end of every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs. I'm Ron Aaron. Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us on our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline. And Peaches Hall is pinch-hitting today for Carol Zerniel. We're talking about uh, the issues involved in hospital admissions for uh, care recipients and others, what you ought to know, what you ought to ask. And Peaches, uh, you were mentioning off-air when you and I talked about this, a ton of questions. Is there a little handbook that people, or one sheet that people can take with them to the hospital that says, here's what you better ask? 
I, I would ask him to go through the whole thing. I, uh, number one, I would say, whatever your loved one's issues are, um, my mother's not able to feed herself. My mother doesn't recognize food unless it's open. Um, my, my mom probably won't keep the IV in. Uh, do you have – go through the day of what she goes through and ask the, ask the people in charge, what are they going to do to make sure she's safe and that she's getting better? And, and that goes for psychopharmacology and all sort of pharmacological needs because don't forget there's a high risk of falling. When you have dementia, obviously you, you have a lot of challenges, and any medication can, can actually rock the boat, and somebody could get hurt more than health mm-hmm. in a hospital. Mm-hmm. And falling uh, can lead to death. Absolutely, and that's exactly, you know, my, she didn't pass away at that time, but my grandmother was given uh, medication. She got up out of bed to go to the bathroom and fell immediately and was in the hospital for weeks longer. Wow. Uh, and, and yet, uh, these are things hospitals know about, should know how to prevent. You would think so. Again, um, I have a strong bias. I, I believe that... Uh, when you have a for-profit-driven hospital system, sometimes it's looked at through those eyes. And so uh, our healthcare system, uh, at least hospitals, I think, the, the nonprofit hospitals um, have maybe a different sort of agenda or, let's say, a different sort of goal uh, because it can never be a financial goal. It has to be a coordinated quality goal. Mm-hmm. Well, my late Uncle Joe opened a hospital in the uh, suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, uh, as a nonprofit, gave it to the city, uh, and operated it that way, and, and he was a strong believer, and this is the 1950s, uh, that that's wow. the way hospitals should operate. Wow, he's Absolutely. my hero. But they don't. Hmm. No, they, they don't, don't. And, 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 and I'll throw this out, because I've been in hospitals for years. Boy, the sisters, the nuns, if you will, from Catholic Charities run a great hospital. Oh, they I do. To watch when, when for-profit companies came in and bought the hospitals and got rid of the, you know, the entire clergy and the nuns who run it. And it just went downhill. So, yeah, uh, yeah let me just tell you that um, we should look very much to your, is it Uncle Joe? Uncle Joe, Joe Tamarkin. As an example to everything yeah. in the yeah. country hospital Even the nurses that were trained by the nuns, oh, wow, superior. Hey, Dr. Jamie, we got to stop you right here. Thank you so much. We appreciate you coming on. And these kinds of questions, last week we talked about the five wishes. Today we're talking about uh, hospital uh, admissions and emergency admissions and what you need to know and what you need to ask. And I think bottom line is don't be afraid to ask. You bet. Thank you. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks. For Dr. Yeah. Jamie Heisman and for Carol Zerniel, who is on special assignment for Peaches Hall, thank you all for joining us today on Caregiver SOS On Air. Podcasts of all of our shows are available. You're listening to us on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.